This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Good evening. Thank you, Tash, for that lovely introduction. Yes, I was uh, born on a prawn farm. Uh, it's a long story, which we won't go into. Actually, a, f- a funny thing happened on, on the way here. Um, I'm sadly going to a funeral tomorrow, and my partner was writing the eulogy, and I had my notes on the table. And uh, I got halfway here, and I realised I'd brought the eulogy. So um, <laughs> luckily, I went back and switched things over. Look at you all, a full house. Thank you all for coming. I know it's cyclonic out there. Um, and as I can sort of gauge, it's a real mixed bag here. So uh, we're going to spend the next two hours meandering through the over 40 years of Ardman. Um, I first... Well, actually, as a child, I, I, I was always playing with uh, plasticine. We couldn't afford plasticine. Mum and Dad actually made uh, uh, made it for me out of uh, flour and water and food dye and put it in a little ice cream container for me. And we were poor, so we couldn't afford the good stuff. And uh, I was always, you know, making things at a, as a child out of uh, toilet rolls and pipe cleaners. So from a very early age, I knew that I was going to be some sort of an artist and I was going to use my hands... But I didn't actually go to film school till I was about 25, and I really didn't know that I was going to end up being uh, a claymator, a clayographer. And, it, and at the VCA where I studied, uh, the other students were all telling me that uh, by pursuing a career in stop motion, I was pursuing a dying art form, that claymation was going to die out and CGI was going to take over. And, of course, the opposite has happened. If anything, uh, we're going through a bit of a renaissance. And my very first uh, Ardman film uh, was actually uh, I saw at the Valhalla, the good old uh, Valhalla, and uh, it was a very one of the very serious early documentation uh, type uh, anime films, and it, it, it really showed to me that that stop motion could be serious as well. It wasn't just for children. So, to cut a long story short, I, I'm very um, honoured and proud to be here tonight, and I just want to thank Peter and David and Nick, who's sadly not here with us tonight, but. Uh, just thank them personally for for uh, giving me the courage and the confidence and the conviction to pursue a career as an auteur claymator. Um, watching their films over the last uh, 21 years of my career, it's been a very validating experience. So, uh, so I'm very honoured to be here tonight. So that's enough about me. As I said, we're going to meander through the the history of Ardman. So, without further ado, would you please welcome? David Sproxton and Peter Lord. Just get settled. You can hear us okay? All right, first slide. Now, we, we. Talking about stop motion can be like watching paint dry. Um, we won't get bogged down too much in, into the nitty-gritty. So we thought we'd do things quite chronological and and start at, uh, well, the, also the start of your careers. And when already we have a lovely little still here. Uh, now, which one's which? It's the 70s, as you can see. So I'm the one in the front who you can't see, and Pete's the one behind wearing the specs. On now... The and that's... In my parents' spare bedroom, we thought animation was drawn stuff, 2D stuff, so there we are doing 
and you sell traditional cell animation on a little homemade rostrum, two by two, bolted together, and a little camera platform. Actually held on clamps so you could take it up and down, and, and um, the old clockwork Bolex camera. Doing and what year was that? Probably around 1972, something like that. Look at this one, there's, there you are, close-up. Oh, there's a close-up of... Let's see how happy we are there. Of your, mm. of your bowl We legs. love animation, even then. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a, a bowl leg, 16 mil. Yeah. Uh, do you still have that bowl leg? We have, not that one, uh, but we have still got a couple of Bolexes, actually. We very rarely use them, but they are lovely pieces of engineering. Great cameras, really. They could do everything. Stop frame, bit of, bit of high speed, obviously designed for live action. Wind up, take them into the field, no batteries needed. And at that time, were you... Did you have these big ambitions, or were you just two, two friends mucking around? No, we were just... Uh, we were just Playing, you know, really, just experimenting. Um, that the camera is significant because it's, as they said, a semi-professional camera. And I think the real point is that back then, in 1971 or whatever it is, um, the, the technology was was inaccessible to most people. Whereas now, it's so incredibly accessible. Like anyone can animate on their phone or on their laptop, which is great. So that when we were doing that, yes, it was a hobby. Yes, it was for fun. But it was also quite odd. Like nobody we knew was was doing anything like it. Um, we were we were the lucky ones because we had access to the camera. And you know, families that did home movies were shooting mostly on Super 8 or or standard eight, you know, uh, film um, reversal. It wasn't professional gauge, but our work shot on 16 mil could actually go on television. It was actually television quality being shot on 16. So we're going to look now at your very first, oh, this is your very first thing you ever animated, and it wasn't clay. So for those who haven't seen it, we're going to watch that now. There you go. <laughs> and I, I'm guessing your, uh, how many thousands of times you've seen that? Uh, plenty, yeah. Yes, yes. But that, that is our demand. That's the, uh, that's the exciting thing, because, um, you know, coming in here, you sit down, you see the name Ardman, and you probably or may you wonder what on earth it means. And that character we called Ardman, um, which was uh, a, not a very good joke at the time, but it was putting together the Ard of Ardvark, because we thought that was a funny word, and the man of Superman. So that's, so that's why he looks, a bit, he looks a bit like a superhero, sort of like a superhero, uh, but he has no, he has no um, Ardvark powers at all, actually. <laughs> um, but it's just... But that's what we called him. And then we sold that to the BBC for 25 quid or something. And they said, who should we make the checkout to? And we chose this otherwise ridiculous name. We should have called ourselves Lord Sproxton Productions. Yeah, we'd be fine <laughs> then. Mm. And we'd be famous then if we'd mm. done that. So then, then with Plasticine, was that on the radar then at this point? Or was it 2D? Or were you just uh, we, sure? we, did, we did actually, at the same time we did that... We did an experiment in plasticine animation at the same time. Um, and I, I, always, I do like to credit someone. There's a, um, we, I'd seen a film on TV in the days when there were no repeats, in the days when there were no VHS recorders, in the days when there was no internet, just imagine. And um, you saw a film on, on TV and you saw it once and it whizzed by and you never saw it again. And that's the way life was then. And it was a bit of clay animation. And it was done by an American called Elliot Noyes. And you could see what it was. It was so obvious what it was because you could see the texture of the clay boiling around. And um, 
that was just a, that was just enough of an inspiration for us to try the same thing, mm. uh, and that's how it started. Yes. We'd done we'd done thirteen little sequences of Ardman for a show called Vision On, and they did thirteen shows every year. So we did a, a sequence per show, but it's actually quite hard work for two guys doing sound animation, paint and trace, shooting it all. It becomes very procedural. It's not lot, most of the most of the time. It's not a lot of fun. It's just just a kind of routine you get through. So when we were asked to do more work for uh, Vision On, we thought actually there's got to be a more fun way of doing this. And yeah. as Pete says. We sort of, and actually the first thing we did was a kind of bas relief, house turning into an elephant sort of thing. Um, camera looking down still, but bas relief modeling clay and a kind of evolution, transmogrification of, of that shape, just frame by frame, which, mm. which seemed to go down quite well. And we thought, there could be, could be some mileage in this. I, th I think it's, it's also true, isn't it, that the, the BBC were getting a bit fed up with us, weren't they? I they? think, yeah, because yeah. we weren't very good script They weren't very good, were they? Really? And they weren't very oh, good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we weren't very good animators, it wasn't. <laughs> But you know, I will say though, seriously though, that 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 sequence you saw, which got a polite ripple of laughter, um, was good enough. You know, and uh, I always think that was quite a good story. I mean, you know, it's a very short story, not brilliantly told, but not badly told. And that's what I think. That's why we have a career. Had it had the story been no good. We wouldn't have gone any further, I think, mm. but because this, it, was, it was that that, that sold it, not, more, not not the art, not the, which wasn't terribly good. And right. actually, that gag, the kind of the whole gag, we've used it quite a lot <laughs> with Morph, Invisible, and Invisible Hold. You'll see a couple of gags using that whole idea yeah. on Morph's YouTube channel. And speaking of Morph, for those who are down the back uh, in the cheap seats, uh, <laughs> you may notice that Peter is already oh. sculpting a little Morph as uh, he just can't help himself. <laughs> And uh, so Morph, when did Morph come along then? How soon after that? Uh, about two, well, about a year, actually. Uh, take Vision On finished. We had moved to Bristol because we thought, oh, we could do more work for Vision On. And they said, oh, Toby, sorry, we're not doing Vision On anymore. What do we do next? Then they said, but we're going to change the show into a more, more art-based show, taking some of the comedy side. There's a lovely guy uh, called The Prof, who was a pixelated figure, live-action figure in a field. A lot of little funny animated inserts. They were cutting back on that and turning the show into more of an art-based uh, show. It became Take Heart with the famous Tony Hart. And they said, look, you know, Tony's great. He's great doing his art, but he's not, he's not terribly entertaining as a, as a performer. So we want something that can act as a, a kind of comedy foil to Tony on his desk, can you come up with a character? And we'd done on Series of Vision on some little, what we call Glebe characters, which were little clay characters, sort of long noses, very squat, so they didn't fall over and big feet. And they said, kind of something along those lines, but just, just one little character that'd be a bit of a, a sort of elfin character, a bit of a um, character that messes things up. Mm. And uh, who named Morph is Morph? Uh, Actually, it was the BBC, in fact. Yeah, it was big, from Metamorphosis, hence the name. Yeah, mm. but, but um, in fact, I don't know. It was very strange, you know, in those days. We, the, we would shoot the stuff, then we'd give it to the BBC, and they would put on, the, they would edit it, and they'd put on the sound effects. Now, all filmmakers now, of course, would, would, would want to be right on top of that. But in those days, mm. they did it for us. Uh, and they came up with the name. He was called Plasman, Plasticine yeah. Man, just as a, as a kind of working title, really, until yeah. we came up with Morph. Yeah. And uh, Morph is, is armatureless, isn't oh, it? Oh, yes, just, yes, just yes. clay, yeah, yes. Because, I mean, frankly, we didn't, uh, yeah, we didn't know anything about anything, anything else of those days. You know, we, 
we chose clay um, because it was so simple and accessible. That was the thing. You, mm. you didn't need any technical knowledge to make a puppet, uh, as you can see. Um, yes, didn't need any technical knowledge. Uh, quick and easy to bake. And I'm surprised that nobody else was doing it at the time. You know, it's because apart from, I mentioned that film that I'd seen, but apart from that, as far as we knew, nobody in the world was doing what, what mm. we were doing. Was plasticine hard to get back then? Is it? No, it's no, it was a very common sort of material. You know, mo most kids had it. It was used at school a lot. Mm. Uh, it was used industrially. It was sort of, in a way, it became, although it was a trade name, it became a common name, a bit like the word Hoover. Mm. Um, everybody used it for all sorts of things. I can remember my brother and I not making figures out of it, but using it for a complete different use, making little tracks of little, little cars to run along. And you have your own secret formula now, isn't uh -huh. Ah, yeah, we have our own mixing machine so now. So secret. Yes. yes. So secret that I have no idea what's in it myself. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, the fact is that it, back in those days, it was made by a, a company in Britain, uh, and it had certain properties, um, um, and it, amongst which was it was rather cold and hard. And before the show... This evening, I had to warm this up for about 15 minutes just to get it malleable. malleable. But it's it's cold and hard and strong, mm. which is good. But now the stuff they make and sell to kids is is soft, mm. soft and weak. Mm. For weak children to play with, yes. and uh, and so we then have, we mix some um, like chalk into it and. Um, pigment as well to make mm. it stronger. Yes, yes. So, I mean, it was invented um, in 1896, so it's kind of the same age as the film industry, curiously enough, uh, by a guy who lived in Bath who thought, rightly, that you could teach education or educate kids through art and wanted a non-toxic, non-ceramic-based non, uh, modelling clay which could have colour, and they invented this extraordinary thing called plasticine, which, and the rest of it didn't change for, I mean, decades and decades and decades. And it's still non-toxic. It's pretty well the same thing. Uh, and it transformed art, art life in Britain, actually, from 1896 onwards. So it was invented down Bath, just down the yeah, road. That's in Bath, Bathampton, yeah, right. yeah. There was a sort of, like a miniature, not a, not a royal society, but people like William Freeze Green, who was part of the kind of you know, cinema invention thing. The whole bundle of little people, not little people, but Victorians were kind of doing interesting stuff together as a mm. kind of collective. And the Harberts were part of that art-based sort of um, bohemian group, I think. Sure. And so shortly after that, you you started uh, moving into well, was you know films that started to have uh, documentary sound in the. Mm -hmm. Do you yeah. call them documations? Is that a word? We don't. Mm, no. Actually, no. We're, we're much more purist in our vocabulary. <laughs> actually, Adam, uh, we would call it documentary animation. I think. Well, we'll watch a uh, a little clip here. This is from uh, Down and Out. Let's get that playing. Um, and the reason we wanted to show this today was also just to talk about how your sets and your characters evolved so much. And you, at, back then you would have been animating blind, so you wouldn't be yeah. animating with any Dragon Frame or Stop Motion Pro, any of those uh, video assist software packages. So all, all of what we're seeing here is uh, uh, on a Bolex? Yeah, yeah. same old Bolex, very much like little setup you saw, a little simple Bolex. Uh, I think we may have had a... I don't know, I think it was still spring, sprung round. You can see the exposure bouncing around. Very simple sets. Those characters were about that big. And we did a kind of interesting thing. We wanted to do close-ups on this, which you've seen. And so we made much bigger head and shoulder models of the characters. And the, and the, the, the heads were then actually quite big, about the size of a tennis ball, actually really quite big for us. 
Um, and by quirk of getting the camera angle right, it looked as if they were the same height sitting in that set, although we actually just sat them in that set and positioned them, the head and shoulders on blocks or whatever, to get the angle right. But actually, it worked surprisingly well. But it allowed Pete, who was animating, to have a lot more control on a, on a bigger model, a lot more clay to move, that's for sure. Yeah. And it was the first time, really, that you had done that degree of sort of facial expression and dialogue sure. in clay. Sure. I mean, um, it was a very, very interesting and, and for us very, very important experiment because, we again, we didn't invent the idea. Like, the great thing about the arts generally is that not many people have absolutely, totally original ideas that you, you stand on the shoulders of the generation before, don't you? And there was... Um, there were two American animators called John and Faith Hubley, and they had experimented in the 50s with recording their children talking, and then they animated uh, to imagine the, the fantasies the kids were having to turn them into, into uh, reality, to, to draw the fantasy. So if the kids said, and then the castle grew very big, they'd make the castle very big, and then the dragon would jump out, and so on. But... Um, so, so that was where the idea came from. And then we were, the idea was passed on to us. And we had no idea that it would, it would be possible with clay. I mean, now it's obvious because we, Adam does it. We, we all do it, you know. But it, it wasn't obvious then, and we didn't know if it would work. Anyway, the point of the story was that the, f the first test, we made a head um, not like the one you saw, a, a, a slightly more realistic head, I think. And uh, about this big, as Dave was saying... And um, it got some glass teddy bear eyes from a, uh, a craft shop. And I thought, God, this is so clever. Because the shiny glass eyes shining in the fleshy plasticine, this is just like, you know, this is so real, we thought. And then I, I animated to match a line of dialogue for a, you know, not very long, a couple of days, I guess. So carefully repositioning the mouth to try to make the same shapes as, the, as, the, as I could hear on the soundtrack. And then, and when we saw it back, it was horrible, and not just not very good. Hor like the thing is, it's like a hideous zombie is what it was like, because these glass eyes stared out, unseeing and blank, and the lower half of the face was sort of crawling around with with, with the mouth moving, and it was just so mm. horrible. And 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 that and that somebody said, and again, a friend said, ah, you want try putting a bead in the head, and so. So that's where you stuck a, a bead, a, 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 wooden, a bead. wooden bead in the mm. head, mm. And, made, and painted that to look like an eye. And then once the eye could move and focus and blink and so on, then, then the whole thing came to life. And your sets too, looking there, are they cardboard or wood or both? Yeah, they're just hardboard, very simple. I mean, there's, there's almost no budget. And there's only really people me doing it, so we kind of built the set, painted them, and, and it's very crudely lit. Mm. We were in a very small space. I mean, the space was but half the size of this platform, so it's mm. a very tiny space to shoot in. Uh, and actually, you know, frankly, we didn't quite, you know, it's very experimental. We didn't know what, what, really what we were doing, how this is going to come out, and the important thing was to, in a way, try the animation. We didn't even think, these, although they were done for the BBC, we didn't really believe they'd ever go on air. Yeah. Uh, and they, they, they did, because uh, uh, they went on at, like, 3.30 in the afternoon off, off, opposite the Haydock races or something like that. Um, they were done as a graphics requisition. They weren't done as a commission programme at all. There happened to be a producer who was working with another animator, and he, they, they were, he would come up with this idea of doing these voice recordings. Um, so for us, it was just an opportunity to try something. Um, and I say eventually they did go on TV, but nobody, nobody saw them. And the, the other interesting thing is that when we started to try and script this and storyboard it, 
we thought, well, because it's animation, there must be some fantasy, we thought. You know, so we'd have mysterious transformations taking place, we thought. And then the, the producer, who's a very smart chap, said, well, I'm not so sure, you know, do it simply. And so what we ended up doing was just sort of recreating in puppet form a, a version of, of real life. And I confess that then and now I don't even I don't even know quite why that works. You know, I mean, because it seems strange. You know, like one, why, why not shoot a documentary? But uh, <laughs> but um, it does work. There's a there's a there's just some amazing magic I think between having the these very natural voices that your brain tells you that's real, that's definitely not scripted, mm. and then this very contrived face talking. And of course, years later, Creature Comforts, uh, yeah, which won yes. the Oscar, Nick. Yep. Uh, Nick Directed. That's uh, right. And how many series are Creature Comfort series? We did an American series and a UK series. Right. So quite and a lot of, an awful lot of animation actually, yeah. And majority of the sound, real documentary, or did you occasionally get an actor in? Well, we didn't, never got an actor in. They were all kind of what we call Vox Pop, Voice of the People, regular Joes, people in the street. What we did do was try and pull out stories, come up with themes and have a conversation, an interview effectively mm. with them. Because what we'd found, everybody said, oh, God, yeah, those two old ladies always get on the number 83 bus. They are so funny. Every morning they're going to be there. So you book a sound recordist and you get on the number 83 bus and they're not there. Or actually, the day they're there, they're as miserable as hell. So that sort of, that sort of you know, panning for gold, actually. Yeah. And... On the first series, uh, on the UK series, and even for Creature Comforts and the other work we did, because we, we did five 16mm versions of that sort of idea for Channel 4, and then another five, of one of which was Creature Comforts. And we, we, we gave ourselves a recording ratio of like 1 to 15. And we expected we'd record something like 15 locations out of which we'd get five short films. Um, that was the idea. And it's notoriously difficult, because <laughs> most conversations are... Unbelievably dull. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And most people aren't that entertaining. Yeah. Uh, and so choosing your protagonists, and we, we then learned actually to use radio journalists. Um, and Pete did a, a lovely film called War Story, which is about the P Bristol and the Blitz. And we found a very lovely radio journalist who'd actually done a series of Bristol and the Blitz and knew this guy, Bill Perry, who was just a great... He just turned him on and off he went. And this is fantastic material. He's just great. So you were trying to find people who were a bit of a raconteur and then basically prompt them. Yeah. Uh, and, and then what we did for the Creature Comfort series, we had probably, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 people that we would record a lot of, but with a sort of interviewer. Because he then said, let's do, one, let's, do a, let's do the themes are going to be these things, so let's yeah. talk about these things. Um, uh, mainly because if you're doing a series, you are dealing with an awful, lot of, an awful lot of material, and somehow you had to accelerate that panning for gold process. Yeah. Otherwise, you could spend, as we had done, literally hours and hours wading through tape after tape after tape to find this very little here that we can yeah. Yeah. And use. Yeah, and uh, English people... You know, it was so it's dull, and, um, and and so low energy. That was the other shocking thing. I remember um, Golly, who was the director of the series, and he, put, he and he put together like the first episode, and we thought, wow, really? Because it, it was all these people speaking a bit like this, in a very very low, uninflected voice. And then, well, that's that's not going to be very entertaining. Is it? But the, the, then I tell you, the, the interesting follow-up to that is that later we did an American series. Um, 
And there we had the, the opposite problem because the Americans were way too keen mm. to perform. So they didn't sound real anymore. They all sounded like they were on stage the whole time. Yeah, they were very good at it. Lots of vocal projection. And, and, <laughs> mm. and, yeah. I've got to tell you this. I've got to tell you that. Yeah. I mean, they did a, we ended a show, the Pee Wee Herman show, which I, I don't right. know whether you saw that. And we did the, the little Penny character. And we got to New York and they said, we, you know, we want to do these animations with kids' voices. And, of course, they had cast from New York... Uh, children's drama school so these kids were so precocious but for us yes <laughs> it was you know we thought we're never going to get this material out of uk kids but these american kids are absolutely fantastic they just opened up and just let rip you know um extraordinary mm. and for us to interpret that sort of stuff was great fun really great mm. fun moving on to uh well i know i get asked all the time adam where do you get your ideas <laughs> yeah. from yeah and I always say, well, every Thursday night at midnight, I meet this guy in a laneway. Jokes are a dollar fifty. You know, it's just this <laughs> eternal question I get. Mm. And so I want to talk about it too much. But inspirations, do you know? Do you have a room full of people coming up with ideas? How does the Ardman uh, inspiration process work? There's no silver bullet, is there? It, it, it sometimes you'll come up with this. It's a great idea. I mean, a good example was. Chicken Run, Nick. Mm. Nick. Uh, I don't know where he got the idea from. He's obviously fond of, you know, war movies and prison of war movies, and then the idea of incarcerated chickens. So he said, "Well, could we do, you know, um, the Great Escape with Chickens?" And we thought, "That's really interesting." And then you work on that, and you work and work and work. You take that nugget of an idea, mm. and you know, here we're seeing, you know, Nick's just a panel from one of Nick's sketchbooks, early Wallace and Gromit. Well, he's wrestling with, I think, there probably what the character is, who he is, um, what it's going to look like, who he's going to be. And you can sort of see his, his mind trying to work out all that stuff. And somewhere there's an idea about a man going to the moon and stuff, but he doesn't work that out. And I think it's hard. You know, you, I say sometimes it comes in the middle of the night, sometimes it comes over a cup of coffee, sometimes it doesn't come at all. Um, and, and then the times when you say, true. we need to make a film about... And we need to make another Wallace and Gromit film. Well, what's that going to be about? So you literally yeah. start from a blank sheet of paper and say, right, okay, what have we got? We've got Wallace and Gromit. What yeah, are we going to do big, now? That's a big start. That's a big you've got, you've got, you've got, got Wallace and Gromit. That's a big, big start. I, I was going to say that the, 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 yeah. the same comes from character. You know, yeah. like if, yeah. it, once you've got a character, then it's relatively easy to find a story. But if, when you haven't got either, it's mm. it's really hard, really hard. I mean, that that Dave's um, Great Escape with Chickens. You know, that was. That continues to be the best idea we've had in 20 years, I think. You know, like yeah, such yeah. a good idea, and and we're always, always looking, always looking for something like that—an mm. idea which is kind of miraculously open-ended that su that suggests a world of possibility. That's, that's what I'm looking. And it's, it's interesting because you know, Sean the sheep appeared in the close shave. Uh, he became very popular through a, a sort of merchandising thing, and we thought, could we do a TV series with him? Could he get his own show? And we employed actually a couple of colleagues of Nick, um, Alison Snowden and, and um, David Fine and Alison Snowden, and they took it and they, they did a, a draft, but they, it didn't it just it didn't work, and it was very hard to work out. They'd made them basically too human, and and Golly actually said, "Hang on, these are sheep. It's a sheep. We're dealing with sheep here. They're not doing sheepy things," yeah. and he was absolutely right. So actually, if they're sheep, they should be on a farm, and Golly sort of said, "Actually, can I have a crack at this?" And he came up with this sort of management hierarchy idea, which was, you know, the farmer as the kind of the factory owner, Bitzer is the shop steward, you know, and Sean and the flock are the workers. And the first series was roughly based on that hierarchy. Mm. And as he was working through the first series, he realised, actually, no, it's a family, isn't it? 
Okay. You know, the farmer's a father, bits of the older brother, and there's me and my siblings. And suddenly it clicked, right, we've now got family dynamic going here. Which, and then the other four series were based on that story idea. But it hadn't, we hadn't landed on that. They're just a classic family going through fun, dysfunctional parents happen to be on a farm. Uh, you know, we made however many episodes before we, before we landed that idea. And then it kind of took off in a slightly different mm. direction. So that's kind of what happens as well. And certainly with the features, you think it's one idea and you realise six, eight months down the line, actually the story is this story. That's a much stronger story to go down. Maybe the same characters, but a different angle. So there's no, there's no hard and fast rule to it. Mm. It's a really trick. I wish, like you, I often say, well, you know, we go down to Woolworths buy a quarter pound of ideas. You know, mm. if, only, if only it was that simple. We have to, somebody asked me a long time ago, how do we keep the creative juices flowing hard, man? And I rather, it wasn't a cynical response. It's like tongue-in-cheek response. I said, well, we, we just employ mad people. And it's our job as producers to kind of turn that madness into money so they can earn a living. But that's kind of what it is. Find the most imaginative people you can yeah. and encourage them to come up with stuff and then guide them through it. Speaking of madmen, um, Nick, of course, is uh, unable to be here with us. He's uh, finishing off directing uh, your next feature, Early yep. Man, which yep. we'll talk a bit about later. But up here is uh, Nick's a prolific doodler, drawer, and yes. I presume a lot of his ideas, and these are very early, early Wallace. We were sort of saying too earlier that it's like, um, these are similar to the very first time you see uh, Homer Simpson. He looks very different to how he looks today, and, yeah. and Wallace has got well, more of a, what's, what is it, his head's a bit rounder well, or something? Because what he hasn't got, not notably in this picture, he hasn't got the wide mouth. I think that's, um, that's what it because is. Because yeah. with, um, Nick was, um, about this time, I guess this is the time he was making a grand day out, and uh, he was at the National Film School, um, and he was making the film. Uh, he, he decided the characters, the man and the dog, and, and is making the film. But but the yeah they, the moon yes, you know they go to the moon to, because they think it's made of cheese. Does that work in Australia? Do you think that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other parts of the world. Just think we're insane. They just, they were, they were, <laughs> Japanese, Japanese don't get it at all. <laughs> but anyway, but so so that you know, so he wants he will go somewhere where there's cheese, the moon. Of course, that's regular. He could go to France, but no, he goes to the moon. And um, and he was he was doing that. He was making that film, and uh, we saw Dave and I saw the first uh, test of Wallace speaking. And I think he said, we've, we've forgotten the crackers. And, and Nick had shot it once with kind of like the drawing we saw before with a fairly conservative mouth. And it was OK, you know. And he knew it wasn't right. And so he shot it again with that super exaggerated uh, coat hanger mouth that he's got. And then it was hilarious. You know, even the same, exa same line of dialogue... We've forgotten the crackers with a great wide mouth. And it, and, and it kind of came out... He, he, he'd seen Peter Salis in a very long-running series called Last of the Summer Wine, which is set in the north of England. And Peter Salis is actually home counties. He's quite, you know, regular accent. So he'd put on this cod mock northern accent, highly exaggerated. And those extended vowels, cheese, grommet, gave Nick the idea of this big, big mouth. So, so much of it came out of the dialogue. Mm. And actually, for our animators, it's the same. You get an awful lot of inspiration out of, the, out of the dialogue and the voices that you record. Can I ask you, too, I've always wanted to ask this, your, Wallace has five fingers <laughs> in animation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's four. It is that, why? Why is that? Oh, fuck. 
I just that's just Nick being stubborn. I think probably yeah. is why you know, um, because the convention is that yeah, the, the convention is if, if they get fight, it gets too fussy, too fussy is the yeah. convention, like, isn't it? The, the Disney Warner Brothers convention, um, but. Nick's solution was to make them bloody enormous. So he's got these, these <laughs> huge hands. There's, there's a shot at the end of um, uh, A Close Shave where his lady love, Wendelin, says goodbye, Chuck, or something, and, and does a little gesture. And, like, her hands are, like, this big. But it's like, yeah, it's enormous. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, but, in, but you know, I, I secretly suspect, as well as, well as copying Peter Salas, which he was... This, I also think that the, he borrowed the mouth shapes from the Preston Blair book of animation. Do you know that one? Oh, that, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Animators in the audience might be familiar with this book by one of the old Disney animators. And, the, and um, there's very, there's very exa- exaggerated mouth shapes marked out for uh, how to do lip sync. I think right, Nick, right. Nick that as well. Well, as you can see, there are oh, two lots of penguins, and this was before. That, that's a yeah. That was before the wrong trousers. And again, because I, I remember these discussions, and, and Nick, Nick had an idea. Amongst the ideas was the house would be infested with penguins. You know, like they'd be everywhere. They'd be they'd be tobogganing down the stairs, and they'd be filling the shower. And, and as you can see, they'd be inches deep. And that was that was such a funny idea. Which, of course, he used in, a close, used in, a, in a close shave with yeah, sheep. Yeah, yeah. Exactly the same idea, but with sheep. Yeah, yeah. So with his scripts, uh, you know, when he... We've got a little slide here of the wrong trousers. So, the wrong trousers. Uh, does he write and draw simultaneously? Or does he, he draws. He draws, he draws. Yeah. He doesn't... I mean, you can see... I mean, Pete's sketchbook's got a lot more words in, but Nick's sketchbooks has almost no words in whatsoever. So okay. he's always thinking in pictures. And if he's, if he's talking about script or thinking about story, he'll be drawing it. Mm, he mm. doesn't. He doesn't say that Wallace does this and the other. He'll, he'll be drawing Wallace doing that. Right. So he's in t- very, very pictorial, which is great because actually you start to form the storyboard mm. kind of as you're going that way. He's got it. He's got a very, very strong visual sense. So when he when he storyboards his stuff, he's very, very sure-footed and knows exactly what it wants. And when mm. you and almost if you look at the storyboard of a wrong trousers in the finished film. They all they can almost completely coincide. It's quite mm. staggering. He, uh, his precision on that stuff is fantastic. But, but we're great believers in in drawing, you know, because mm. it's uh, yes, there's Sean the sheep as well. It's um, it's quick, you know, quick. It's quicker than writing a lot of words because because when you, you do just just a drawing like that, you can't instantly. You're kind of in the moment. You know mm. what's going on mm. instantly. Um, is drawing a, a prerequisite to be an admin employee? Uh, just about. Yeah. <laughs> Even the accountants. Yeah. yeah. Even the accountants. It's, it's good for the, it's good for the animators. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the animators to do um, life drawing. You know, yes. even though they they're not they're not required to draw for their job because they're sculpting instead. But I think, it's, I think it helps them to be alert and mm. observe and so on. We're going to some more There's character designs here. So we'll move yeah. into the design of characters. And, of course, it all starts with a drawing. And yeah. there's Bitzer. And we've got uh, some more, more Sean some here. Sean. And then eventually you get this. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that, that took a while for that jump. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. A lot of iterations. And what, we'll, what you see in that picture is that rather curious sideways mouth. Mm. You know, sheep have mouths to kind of almost under, under the chin. And we knew they're going to have to... They weren't going to say much. They're going to meh and stuff. But they need to somehow show they're smiling or sad. And Golly came up with this weird idea of sticking the mouth shape on the side. 
which kind of works in a curious sort of way and gives them um, more expression. Mm. Sean has kind of no profile, but it looks, it looks, <laughs> the mouth looks ludicrous in profile. Mm. But it, yeah. yeah, in fact, so, so by the way, does um, does Wallace look really strange in profile? So that mm. throughout his whole career, he's he, he manages to stay full face to camera sort of ninety percent of the time. Because <laughs> he's got almost a two-dimensional head, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. 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 And Sean, actually, when the first visit I had to uh, your studios, I saw some Sean the sheep uh, fur, and it's it was real. It's real sheep's wool, is it? Or it looked like yeah. a you carved it back. Well, it certainly looks like that. I don't know whether I, it's probably, but it is. Yeah, it's, def de it's, it's definitely yeah. you know text highly textured and stuff. Absolutely, it is. And he's fully amateur. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ball yeah. And it, yeah. No. No. He's just wire. I think. It's because wire. Yeah, that, legs are wire. Because that puppet is, a, is about that size, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. It's about that size, and so um, the legs are you know that long and pretty thin. So I think they just wire with um, uh, silicon outside them. He's he bitsa is a little bit bigger, and as you can see, his legs are a little bit thicker. So it's possible for him yeah. to have a. Um, uh, proper armature with ball and sockets inside. And jumping ahead to, uh, I just want to touch on briefly the advancement in 3D printers. And we were talking earlier about how uh, you have sort of embraced, you know, with yeah. pirates, with yeah. the, the pirate's mouth. And yes. tell the audience just a little bit about, you know, what new technology of that. Yeah, yeah, because when the characters talk, uh, we saw a little glimpse, didn't we, early on of. Um, down and out, a very early film. And if you know Creature Comforts, another early film, back in those days, when the characters talked uh, and the mouth shape changed from, from one sound to another, from an R to an E or whatever it would be, uh, the mouth was clay and was re-sculpted completely every time the sound changed. So you would, you know, if you're going from a, 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 an a, um, to an E, the, the um, the lips are closed. When you get to the E, you you'd go in with a stick, like this, and and you'd, you'd, you'd shove the mouth open with a stick, and you'd, shove it, and you'd, you'd squeeze out the cheeks. Then you'd make some little plasticine teeth. And like a dentist, you'd try and fit the teeth into their head very, very carefully. Uh, every frame you'd do that, and that was a very, very, very slow process. And maddening if he went... Mm, mm, e, mm, for some reason, back to the end. You know, you've done all that sculpting for for a quarter of a second, and they have to go back to the M again. So that was kind of that's how it was, which is kind of exasperating. And so we devised the system for building substitute mouths in advance in plasticine. Uh, and like, so Wallace is the classic case. He's got a line across here, and and you. you you can tear off, you tear off the bottom half of his face and, and tear off the M shape and put on the E shape and then you just smooth in the line, et voila. And that, that works fine, that works, that works very well. And that's what we're doing today, again, on, the, uh, on Early Man. But with the pirate movie, um, the pirate captain in the script emphasised repeatedly that he had a luxuriant beard, like it was, an imp it was very important to him. And because of that line in the script, we went to enormous lengths to try and work out how the hell, how to replace these mouth shapes with a beard in the way. 
Uh, and so in the end, we ended up with, with this, um, a silicon rubber beard. I think of wonder, actually. And, which, and you, you, you pulled the beard down, and you took one face off, and put in another face, and, and the beard bounced back into place. And we decided that that wouldn't work with plasticine, that you couldn't... That would be just too fiddly. So, sorry, long story. So, so we decided that we would make the mouth shapes hard, and so we 3D printed them. So, so for that film, um, we started with a plasticine sculpt of the character, but then we scanned it into the computer and we animated the mouths on CG and printed them out in resin and plonked them in place under the beard. So that was a... Um, and that was a decision we, I made, you know, and I'm stick with it. It was fine, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I know, but I know the purists in the company were tutting about this because it was because it wasn't clay. They, you know, they wanted they wanted to, the purists would like to suffer more uh, and spend longer. The other thing I was saying to Adam as well, um, that I'd see the animator at work, and they would like with with Wallace talking away, and. Every uh, frame or every second frame, they'd take his head off and the animator would go to a little place in the corner and sit down and, uh, with the head and take off the bottom of the face and put the new one on and smooth it in. And it was very, very... And I thought... I thought it was labour-intensive and I also thought it broke the flow because I mean, Adam sort of agreed with me that, that, that we think that animation should be as... As, as spontaneous as it can be, you know, it is a slow process, but the, the, more, the more energy you can keep up, the, the better, I think. I think that's absolutely right. It saved, it gave the anim animator more time on the body language. And the upper, the upper head was plastic to the eyebrows and the cheeks were done regularly. Um, quite a lot of work to do the, the RP stuff, actually, because you had to make them CGI, print them, test them. Paint them. Paint them yeah. So whether I don't know whether it saved us any money. It, <laughs> saved, it certainly saved time yeah. on the studio floor. And then, of course, post production had to take out that little gap in post production. So every every talking frame, somebody had to effectively Photoshop out that gap. So there's, it was quite a. It is you know, labour intensive, but not actually on the studio floor, which meant we probably got better performances from the animators uh, for doing it that way. But I think too that the, 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 you've always celebrated the fingerprints on the clay and. Yeah. and and there are other stop-motion studios around the world, and I won't name them, but, <laughs> you know, I think they're sort of getting carried away with the 3D printers and they're getting this, this super slick look and it, it almost doesn't look stop-motion. Right. It yeah. almost yeah, looks like it's done on CGI. And yeah. So I think it, it's very important, is it, then, that Aardman retains its, its you know, that yeah. everything yeah. you're seeing is mostly tangible, tactile, you can hold in your hand. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we've, we've kind of... Um, Embrace that, you know, it's always been the case. And in the early days, it was incredibly obvious, just as a matter of... We didn't really have the skills to do anything else. It was very obvious in the early days that there were fingerprints everywhere, that it was looked very handmade. And now, with as the world of CG has zoomed along beside us and taken off hugely big time, uh, increasingly we think, oh, well... That we should be proud of, and and um, you know, put put front and centre the fact that we did that it's handmade, and mm. yeah. We mentioned earlier visual storytelling and that that, that script rule of uh, show it, don't say it, and um, I noticed you've included one of your uh, page of the pages here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Explain. Yeah. <laughs> We're great believers in yeah. getting the script right. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a page, actually, it's a gag when we were presenting um, the Sean Shoot film to distributors. This is, it was, it's just great to say, and here's a script. <laughs> just, just as a gag, it's good fun. Yeah. But actually, with the Sean the Sheep series, uh, and indeed with the features, I say features because we're doing another one, we don't have a conventional script. The script is much, much shorter. It's probably like 20 pages as opposed to, say, 65 or 70 pages because uh, there's no dialogue. And it's, the storyboard is really where you start to really make the film. So the script is descriptive of action um, and sort of shortcut, in a sense. And then we'll start storyboarding effectively those paragraphs and build it from there. So it's a, it's a lovely, in a way, it's a, it's a more interesting way. It's a yeah, more imaginative way to work. It's a nice way to work, not having to worry about dialogue. The script will say, you know, Bitzer thinks this or sort of says this. That's the, in, that's the intent. So we've got to show that intent in silent movie mode. Yeah. Mm. Which sometimes is almost it's impossible, impossible, isn't yeah. it? It's, yeah. it's, you know, like... Um, Bitzer thinks he's forgotten the keys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, you could do that. You could pet, you could pet his yeah, pockets, yeah, but, but, but some, but just one or two things that are written in the script, which are almost impossible to convey in, in mind, which is effectively what we're doing. And when you think about the old, you know, the classic silent comedies, you think of the masters like Chaplin and Keaton and, and so on. Um, they had these those surtitles in, in those um, intertitles, inter inter but you know, sometimes they use words to tell you what was going on. And we don't have that luxury, so it has to be yeah. all done yeah. with. Performance. We've got uh, some. Uh, well, these are many things uh, that you've sent through that are pitch pictures, yeah. uh, set designs. I mean, you you were interested in them. I think I think you asked us like, how do you how do you sort of prepare for a project? And and um, these actually, there's lots of these. They, they're quite. These are quite advanced for the pirate film. And these. Are, this is a presentation that we made. To convince the studio to to greenlight the picture. That's Sony what it was for. Pictures, yeah. Sony pictures, yeah. yes. So yes, so that tells us that we had done quite a lot of work on character design at that stage, uh, and lots of uh, work on the on the look of the world as well. Um, we've gone to we've gone to quite a lot of lengths. Top top right is a is a is a model of the captain's cabin, a bit like the one in the exhibition downstairs, but not that one, uh, which we'd made uh, as part of our pitch. You know, you, you, you've got the studio there, uh, you've got a good script, and and really our job is to, is to convince the studio to give us money. That's basically our job. At that and and actually, the plan was, because it's about a ship on the high seas... Uh, we thought, actually, this film will probably end up being made in CG because of the complexity of it. But we thought, how do we get the look? How do we get that kind of stop-frame hard man look? So we built... I got our model makers to build, actually, the Captain Cabin set, and we thought, let's, let's light that in the way that we light our sets. And we'll get some of our guys to kind of put it through Photoshop to treat it in a way that could be done in CG. So we made this lovely set. Frank Passingham actually worked at the studio that we won't mention. Uh, did a beautiful job of lighting it in a number of ways and taking some beautiful stills, and then we cranked that through Photoshop. And then Sony were visiting, the guys were visiting, and we said, oh, by the way, we made this sort of test set to, to give us visual inspiration. And they saw it and said, oh, my God, we've got to do this in a soft frame. So 
which was great. It actually, it was a ploy that Pete had, I think. <laughs> when the, once they see the set and the models, they'll awesome. decide to do it in stop frame. So that's what happened. And actually, it worked for the better because we then could use, we used CGI, obviously, for the, for the sea and the liquids and, the, and some of the more tricky um, sequences, um, it, but not the character work. It um, was quite extraordinary, actually, mm. because cause when they came and said, yes, we like it, what we had with us was the the head of um, Sony Pictures. Like, uh, this, is a, this is a Hollywood mogul. She's quite a crazy one. She's called Amy Pascal. And she was the real deal Hollywood mogul, worth, worth billions, you know, very powerful woman, green lighting live action films the whole time. And she came in and saw that set and was sort of, oh, look at the little socks there. And look at the, you know, like, she was just like a kid, you know, mm. and it's funny. And, and you know, again, you know, Adam, that, that it works for us, doesn't mm. it? You know, people, the general public love to see the, the I noticed too that giant crab, I don't think that made it in, did it? No, 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 no try, we yeah. tried. God, yeah. we tried to get that giant crab. It was crab storyboard, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. We had real. many giant crab openings, but yeah. but uh, yeah. uh, never. Yeah, and somewhere there's, here. I think in the middle there at the top. In the middle at the top, is that's meant to be, the interior of uh, Big Ben, the the oh. clock. We had a big sequence there that, that never made it either. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this is all come with, you know, what they call visual development coming up with ideas and you'll see in the exhibition that the, some of the stages going towards this from various art directors in fact on this on this film we engaged um terry gilliam's art director um i always forget his name norman, norman garwood norman garwood and in the exhibition a couple of his sketches quite small they're kind of a4 size sketches of how he saw the interior of, of that the one, of the, the top in the middle one, is, yeah. is one of his. And then like you'll see the production design work that goes to the model makers and then the set. It's just lovely to see Norman's work with lots of really funny stuff in there, lots of very sketchy stuff, which then gets interpreted into what we built finally. So that's kind of what all this is about. So moving on, we've got some uh, little uh, stills <laughs> here of Wallace, and this is going back to how the characters have evolved over the years yeah. visually. And um, I also wanted to show the audience... Gromit, and yeah. again, Gromit is all visual, and he originally was going to have a mouth. Yeah, right? yes, he was. Actually, yeah. yeah, this sequence. This was a sequence which Nick shot at the film school, and is being used as a sawhorse by Wallace, and he obviously reacts to something. And he'd written a line uh, for Gromit to say, and but when he got to animate, he realised that in the position that, that Gromit is, he couldn't actually get to the mouth. And he realised he could say it all with just a look, um, you know, a move of that amazing mono brow and a, and a look from the eyes. And we'll often say to each other, look, we don't need to say that line, we can just do it with a look, which is much more powerful, actually. Yeah. And that's why Gromit is mute. Yeah. He realised everything he needs to say or everything we need to know he's thinking about, he can do with his face. And we've got a little clip. Little clip. Here we go. So talk us through this. Yeah. So this is a, this is then a very. This is one of the first scenes that Nick uh, shot at all, and so that's the very early Wallace without his um his hang on mouth, very small mouth, um thinking yeah great big hands even then. That's a later grommet. That that's a later grommet that was shot six months later. So he looks he looks quite like grommet there. You know. But then, but now we'll get to the shot that Dave's talking about there. That's a very, very early Gromit. That's probably Gromit's first appearance on the film, I expect, that shot. Um, and, he, and as you say, couldn't, couldn't get to the mouth, so he did it with the eyes instead. Yeah. And then as soon as, he did, as soon as he did that, 
he thought, yeah, that works. That's yeah, that's the future. And that was, and we've got here some um, some some of Nick's very early uh, semi storyboards, I suppose. Yeah. So these are these are what Nick would call, and we would call thumbnails. His thumbnails are really quite detailed. Our thumbnails are much much more sketchy. Thumbnail sketches, some thumbnail sort of storyboard images where you're really roughing out stuff. But his roughing out is really pretty precise at that stage. Um, and then you go on to a, a sort of a more refined version of that, which is tidier and cleaner. But actually, it's still all there. And this is Nick's you know, train chase sequence, which is just a brilliant piece of storyboarding uh, and a brilliant idea. Mm. So, yeah, so this, this storyboard for the train chase in the wrong trousers, you know, it's, as David was saying earlier, shot for shot, that ends up in, in the film, looking very similar, actually. All the gags are in there. And Spielberg has claimed this is one of the best chase sequences in cinema history. Yep. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, right. and he's right. He's right. <laughs> right. So. Again, again, it's interesting, isn't it? Because what it is, is a great idea. Like, mm. you, could, you could pitch that idea in itself. You know, the, 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 we'll, we'll have that train chase that we've seen in Indiana Jones, you know, jumping along from car to car, but on a tiny little toy train. That's <laughs> a great <laughs> idea. So he's getting along... So, and Nick, Nick did all these as well. Yeah, did um, all these, yeah. And a bit more to come as well. We're going to uh, show an animatic later, but uh, I really I'm glad that we're showing the audience this, particularly for the students out there, and I've got a couple of my students here, uh, the importance of really clear and concise uh, storyboards and animatics. The best thing is that when he picks up that box of spare track, there are four bits of track in it. <laughs> and it, it, it runs for about 40 seconds or something. And you don't think about it, do you? you don't bottomless. Think yeah. It's bottomless, wonderful. And, and if you look at it, if you go through it frame by frame, you'll find that Gromit actually has three paws yeah. to put it down uh, so, so quickly. Yeah. And, and the lovely thing about that, it, 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 it looks very sophisticated and it's beautifully cut. Actually, it's quite straightforward to shoot. It, um, you know, the, the rolling background, the camera and the railway were attached to, a, to the, the camera rig. So we would move the camera and the train would move relative to it, uh, which meant the background was blurred. So it would have a, a, you know, a shutter speed of, I don't know, a second and a half or two seconds. So you would just push this, this uh, camera dolly uh, so far each frame. And we actually tried to uh, so automate it using a, a motion control computer, simple computer system. But it, it made it too even. It made it look too mechanical. And we found that by the inaccuracy of each frame being slightly different, because it was literally hand-pushed, gave it an energy which pushing it, using a, a motion control computer didn't give it. Yeah. But it was terribly, practically a very simple thing to do. I, I animated some of that. Uh, and I, I remember I did the shot where he goes, hang on, Gromit, I'm all right behind you. Uh, and I, I made him a sort of rock on his on his. Um, he had his, one leg was stuck at right angles, but, but he lost balance, so he was doing this. And dear old Nick, he was quite pained because I'd overanimated it because he because he he just wanted it dead simple. He didn't want that, that rocking around. Just mm. just just locked off to him. The other thing that makes me laugh, I think, it's brilliant, which is just which is in a way it's the heart of the joke that went that just before he, he gets the spare track. It, Wallace says, oh, I, we're doomed. Gromit, 
doomed because they're on a toy train that's going <laughs> to bump, that's going to bump into the into the wall. You know? <laughs> but in the moment, you, you know, mm-hmm. you're with him. You, know, you think you think it's the end. The world is coming. Actually, the other thing watching that too, you you realise the importance of sound. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got music going. You've got all the foley effects. Mm. Can you just talk to the audience a little bit about your process? So obviously, you know, with lip sync, you have to record the actors prior to animating, but. Um, how do you approach sounds, particularly the, something like that? Well, I mean, the m- m- music is is scored to that. Uh, Julian Knott, who's who's uh, scored all the Wallace and Gromit films, um, will know the themes. We'll come up with themes, and we'll come up with you know the major theme. We'll come up with ideas for particular sequences. But until the film's cut, uh, he will say, "Wait, wait, wait I, it's not be worth doing much more until, until the fine cut is in place, because I need to know where the beats are and where the cuts are going to be and where the action changes." Um, and that's what happens. Uh, you then he then scores it. You then go into a, um, a you book an orchestra somewhere. Sometimes I think for these it was Prague because it was cheaper then to do it in Prague than it was in the UK. And at the same time, our sound designer, who happens to be another natural film uh, school graduate, Adrian Rhodes, who does a, does a huge amount of feature films these days, very prestigious sound designer, um, starts laying stuff down. Um, and you're trying, you're making sure that. You know, one doesn't step on the other one's toes, where the music needs to be strong, take the other stuff down. And actually, we do spend a lot of time, because, you know, as you say, you've got to make up all the sounds. So, and Close Shave was relatively simple in terms of sound effects. As, we've, as the films have got bigger and we've got more experience, you know, there's a lot more sound being layered up there. Is, isn't it true, Dave, that the, the music was more dramatic for the trade chase? Originally? Yeah, it, it, Julian's first take was, I think, a bit more Keystone Copsy, actually. Oh, was it? And was I it? think it didn't... Oh, it didn't, less didn't, 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 didn't yeah, so yeah. didn't... Well, actually, he, that was his, it was his second or third go, and I was thinking about this as it played, because it's not very... It's, uh, actually, I think it's a lot pastier than his first take was. His first take didn't fit at all. So, no, go back. It needs to be, have more energy and more drive. So this is what he came up with. Because well, music is incredibly important. Yeah. Uh, yeah. impactful. I mean, it's sh- it's, to a filmmaker, it's actually, to be honest, quite shocking because you could work away for a, a year and a half on something and then this guy comes along with his orchestra and, and, and writes something which will completely transform the way mm. you, that you see it. Hope for, for the better, ideally, mm-hmm. but, yeah, mm-hmm. but it's, yeah. And on, on Curse of the Were-Rabbit, which is a bigger film, and it needed a lot more orchestration and a lot more orchestration of those sort of Wallace and Gromit themes. So DreamWorks said, look, you know, we'd like to bring in Hans Zimmer and his team. And actually, Hans, at the end of the day, was fantastic because he, had to, he always has a little team of protégés, three or four guys or girls who are actually going to be really good film composers, and he brings them along. And we um, dug it, we entrenched ourselves in the, in, a, in, a, in the bottom of Delaney Lee in Soho. Uh, Julian came up with all the tunes and the, and the themes, but they did the orchestration in terms of the mood that was needed. So you actually had the best of both worlds. We had a, a non-Zimmer soundtrack, but actually orchestrated by Hans Zimmer and his team, which gave it a real richness. Uh, and the soundtrack on that is, it is pretty fantastic. Talking of which... Because the way rabbit. Yes, we got way rabbit here, and uh, we're going to. No, no, we're not going to hear any sound now, are we? No, 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 we're not. This is this is this is silent, but this is this is rather interesting, I think, because this again is somehow um, indicative of the, the way we work. Now, this so this is a sequence that is storyboarded. It's a chase, as you can see. It's got um, Gromit wearing a rabbit costume on a space hopper being chased by Victor uh, on a bogo stick, of course. And, um, and this was a very elaborate sequence that was planned 
uh, drawn more than once, uh, and then eventually uh, it, this whole sequence that used to last for oh three minutes ends up about ten seconds in the film in the end that that we decided. Despite it being quite brilliant, it, it, it just, just didn't. It wasn't room for it in the film. It didn't. The film didn't need another chase at this moment. And that's a storyboarding. That's a story reading process. It's where you test out your ideas. Are these strong? Some lovely, funny gags. Great visual gags, great gags. In, in the sequence. But as we say, you, it's an awful term. But you kind of got to kill your babies because there simply wasn't enough screen time. And as Pete says, you didn't need chase sequence of that length at that point in the movie. It wasn't the denouement, it wasn't the big one. It's just a sort of stepping stone to the next, next bit of the movie. So this all got, most of this got junked. The other thing too, I really noticed it how, you know, your animatics compared to Pixar's, for example, which are just almost works of art in themselves, yeah. it was a very, just you know, black and white, very simple, and it's about clearly communicating the story. Yes. And the, we, the next animatic we have has some scratch sound on it, scratch yeah. sound. Uh... So this was the original ending to Curse of the Were-Rabbit, um, which laid in the, st in the story reel for forever, actually, and, uh, and not long before they started to shoot it, Nick had a few worries about this. We'll, we'll let the sequence play and we'll, we'll talk about why. So that was the scripted and real story reeled ending. And Nick... Clearly, he, he wasn't terribly happy with it, and we started to talk about it and realised a whole bundle of things weren't, weren't right, mostly to do with the character arcs of particularly Lady Tottington. Lady Tottington, she'd been running the vegetable competition for 400 years on, on, the, on the Tottington Manor, and PC Mac was the least of the believers in the veg competition. So the question was, why, why would they get married? It's a bit odd. I mean, I think the guys thought... That contradiction was funny in its own right, but it didn't really feel, fit with the arc of the story. So we sat down and, and we kind of went back to the fundamentals of the film, which is about the fundamental theme, which is really about change and transformation, and said, well, look, you know, Lady Totty, she's, she's the one that kicked off the whole damn thing. She was the one that called Antipesto, so I've got this rabbit infestation. What happens if she decides at the end of the day, she actually rather likes rabbits, she doesn't want to kill them off in the end, she wants to be their friend. And Nick took that idea um, and set up the ending that you have now, which is, again, it's a false wedding. There's uh, Wallace and Lady Totty, and it looks like they're getting married, but actually unveils the Tottington Hall rabbit sanctuary. Uh, and then you, you then reverse the bun vac, and the whole story just it wrapped up all the loose ends very, very nicely just by going back to, as it were, the core theme running through the film. And it played to the character arcs as well. And it was much, 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 much more satisfactory. I don't know if, if, uh, how it plays over here, but um, at the end they deliver the rabbits back over the Yorkshire border. Mm. Uh, that's because there's, a, there's a, a legendary rivalry between Lancashire and Yorkshire, the two counties. So that was a, a, a little private, pr a private joke. Also, it made it clear... What was never quite clear before was which side of the border uh, Wallace lived on, because um, yeah. he had his affection for Wensleydale cheese, and a Wensleydale is a, is a Yorkshire cheese. So I think Nick was just making it clear that he was <laughs> that he's a Lancastrian at the end. So he didn't get that gag into Curse of the Were Rabbit, but he did get it into <laughs> A Matter of Life and Death. <laughs> so he'll he'll store gags up. I'm going to get this in a film somewhere, yeah. definitely. So. 
Right, well, now we're going to move on to sets and, uh, you know, we, we saw how your sets are evolving and these are some uh, set designs for uh, Shaun the Sheep, the f- movie. And uh, there's some. There's another giant crab. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Also noticed just earlier a little, a little reference there. Who, who was the illustrator for these? Um... I don't know. I don't know who that was. Well, how many do you have? Like, do you, how many people? We well, sometimes we there'll be freelancers. And sometimes yeah, we don't have many people who do this, do actually. No, no. This thing that's... Because that, that drawing is like... Um, that painting is uh, inspirational. Like, yeah. it's not, it's not going to... That's never going to be recreated exactly, but it shows the intention. And, and again, it's probably for pitching as well. As yeah. Else. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know who that I don't was. I can't remember who did that one. It might be that, it might be Alfred Lupier, who was a Spaniard. Yes. It might be yes. him. Brilliant. So then we got some actual sets. Uh, so where do we begin? I mean, the first thing I'm noticing is the green screen. And uh, for those in the audience, uh, can you explain what green? So we used to um, chicken run in particular. We did pretty well all in camera because you were just on the edge of good comping in the digital age. So, but we were traditionally, we were using tr- traditional techniques where we painted very large backings and, these, and they would be often, say, 25 feet across. These would be like almost theatre-scale backdrops um, and we had scenic artists doing those. Uh, quite good to do, but it meant that once you'd shot it, that was it. If you wanted to change the, the mood slightly... Um, it was really hard. Whereas, obviously, with the green screen, you, you would actually, you would, and also meant you could have a little bit more movement. You could comp, you could um, have backings and sky scenes which were moving slightly. The clouds could be moving, and it gave you a greater control on the mood of when you finally comped it in, because you could actually grade that separately for lighter or darker, moodier or lighter. Um, and also, it saved actually a lot of space and a lot of time doing scenic backgrounds, because if you look at Chicken Run, there are a lot of exterior scenes, and there's an awful lot of scenic art in that film, which we kind of avoided doing on that scale for um, Shaun the Sheep. And now that's kind of standard practice. Same, same rules applied for Pirates, mm. where we did digital, digital backings on that as well. Yeah. Same degree of skill needed. I mean, instead of working on a huge 25-foot backdrop, they're working on a, on a tablet. You need, some, you, know, you need to be a good scenic artist to capture that, but it makes life just easier, to be honest. Easier and quicker and more flexible. And we've got some blue screen there too. Um, that, that's the set which is downstairs, isn't it? Yeah, in the that's the exhibition. Under the Arches set, which is where we're showing these lighting changes. And there you can see the scale of the thing. There's our Adam, our electrician, uh, rigging something on that set. And that very set is in the exhibition. And you're uh, you're in your features. You have two studios in Bristol. You have uh, yes. Banana Factory, Gasfree Road, and your feature studios. And how many stages and sets will be going? Uh, how many stages? How many animators and stages simultaneously are going? Uh, apparently, on on um, Early Man, which we're shooting now back at base. I think I was told there were 37 animators, which is an awful lot. So there must be at least 40 different. Stages. So when you say stages, we're talking about sets. Yeah. So so that one, that one there, you can see that's a set. It's surrounded by black walls, uh, and eventually there'll be a, eventually there'll be a camera on it, and there'll be a camera and an animator, and he'll shoot scenes. We don't have forty as big as that. Some of them are bigger, and some of them are quite tiny. But forty different units, as we call it, uh, all under one roof, 
each with lights, camera, actors, action. And it's interesting to note that on the Pirates film, there's a big fight sequence in the galley of the ship. And I think we had six sets just dealing with yeah. that scene. So basically that galley scene was replicated six times from different angles. But there were six sets of cookers, six yeah. sets of crockery, six sets of pots and pans. Um, because it's a, and, and we had 14 pirate captain models, was it? Something like that? More, I think. Yeah. Probably 20 or I think. So you, you yeah. have multiple models because as I say, it becomes a huge log logistical exercise of getting the film made. So how many sets do you need? How many of each model do you need? It's like having multiple clones and, of an actor. And the most mind-boggling thing to me is that, so let's say there's 20 different pirate captain models, it, it might mean that on one day, 20 different people are animating that same character simultaneously. And in the finished film, of course, you're not meant to be aware of that. You're meant to think it's just one performer, one actor running through the whole thing. So, it's, so therefore, um, the animator's working sort of sympathetically with each other uh, and, and, you know, sometimes, you know, holding back a bit and sometimes stretching a bit to, to make, make all the performances join together. It's an amazing achievement by the animators. Okay. Uh, Adam, you were, you were interested because that railway arch there, those, arch, those stone arches, they were, in, they were in the Pirates movie, so they were... You see, so recycled. Crafted, they recycled, they were. <laughs> Green movie-making. Yeah, yeah, How, yeah. Uh, and also talk about camera moves, because mm. you have these incredible motion control rigs, and what, every third shot is, has a camera move? Yeah, and we don't do it for its own sake. You do it for a dramatic purpose, but over the years, you've built up... It's a kind of big boy's Meccano. Um, Shooting digitally, the cameras are much lighter now than the, the Mitchells, big 35mm cameras, which you saw earlier. Um, and so the, those rigs can be much smaller, much lighter. And, and very often, you might just be doing um, a bit of a track and a pan. So you only want maybe a couple of axes on them. And you get an awful lot of camera moves, which are really quite small and quite scary. So two axes, and they're quite quick to program that way. We do have some big motion control cranes. Um, which we bought for Chicken Run to hold these big Mitchell cameras, which were made by Mark Roberts. And they're massive, great robotic things, huge, great things. They now have a little digital SLR on the end of them. Um, incredibly precise, quite, quite cumbersome in comparison. You know, they'll do huge three-dimensional moves. And we use them a lot on the pirates for the big um, you know, pans around the ship big three-dimensional moves. But a lot of our, a lot of the moves, like in a live-action film, are quite small, just following a character, little corrections, little widens, those sorts of things. So we have a lot of quite straightforward kit that are quite quick to program. And we have two or three motion control programmers, motion control camera people, where you're dealing in multiple axis moves. And they, they're just a lot more complex to move, uh, to check out. And, and it does take time, because you've got to play the move through, work, make sure the model's going to be in the right place. So it takes quite a bit of planning on the bigger moves. And they're all plugged into very sophisticated software now. Dragon Frame? And I often say to people that the digital technology in many ways has liberated what we do because now the animators can see in, in 4K, 5K, 8K, you know, they can mm. see what they're doing so clearly. And, yeah. mm. and is that speeding up the process? Um, 
If you went, turn the clock back to 1981 and watch P Animate Morph, where he was doing about 20 seconds a day, you would say, no, it hasn't mm. sped up the process. <laughs> uh, if you looked at the quality of the animation, you'd say it's definitely improved. It, it was rubbish. Um, and, that, and Dragon, you know, the, the software, digital capture, high quality image, images, the ability to edit, edit, edit out frames you don't like, the networks, they go straight to the, you know, the server and all that kind of stuff. All the technology works really, really well. And for the animator, it's a fantastic toolkit. Mm. Uh, and actually, for the DOPs, it's a great toolkit as well. And, I must, and for a director, it's so it's great. Yeah, I love yeah. the digital thing because in the past, in in the in the pre-digital era, an awful lot of your energy went into fretting about things going wrong. Mm. You know, like if something fell over or, the, or one of the lights failed or something like that, you could you could lose a shot for something. And now those problems just disappears. Mm. It, it can be fixed so easily digitally now. So that's kind of liberating. Does it allow for more time for the director and the animator to rehearse? You know, do you have still have that luxury of every shot has a rehearsal period? You, you should do. You try, we try to. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, we there are different forms of rehearsal. I mean, um, the drawings, the the pencil drawings themselves are some. You know, the, in those you perhaps rehearse, you block out the scene, let's say, in pencil drawings. But then when you get to an individual shot, um, in the old days, um, the director would talk to the animator. That was, <laughs> that was like all you would do, and just gesture wildly and say, like this, you know, like this. And you do that, and you do it over and over again, hoping, hoping to see in the animator's eyes a spark of recognition that they kind of knew what you were talking about. And... Uh, and, and, that, and I, I remember sort of, you know, acting out something about 20 times, you know, not quite convinced that the animator got it. Uh, but now, increasingly, what we do, the directors um, record themselves on video um, doing the gesture. Uh, and, we and I'm not talking about replicating that exactly in animation, because that would be actually be awful. That would, be, that would look lifeless and soulless. Mm. But... Normally, you've got something in your mind, a sort of a gesture. There's some part of the gesture that you think is important that you want to convey. And it's much easier to, to do that on video. You do it yourself, do it with other people. Um, record that and say, there you go, that's the, that's the brief. So we do that. And then sometimes, um, depending on the schedule, the animator m might literally rehearse the shot, might do the whole thing roughly once and then do it again Perfectly. Mm, mm. We've got some more uh, stills here. I just, I love these. I always love these, these scenes, these giants on the set. It just, <laughs> the other thing about the, the software is that uh, the animator can see the outgoing shot and the incoming shot that are around his shot. So he can work out what the pacing needs to be and the continuity, and he gets a sense of the whole sequence. Uh, before you could do that, they were kind of shooting a bit in isolation and were a little bit disconnected from the whole the whole film, they're just doing a shot, but didn't quite know where it fitted in. So it's given them a great, much greater ownership of the whole film yeah. because they can, they can see this thing on their, on their system. They can draw up the, the animatic story wheel. They can draw up the shots which it links to, the soundtracks laid down for them. They can play that as they animate it through. whole bundle of... It's great. It's a fantastic tool. Really fantastic. It, this is a good shot. Um, mm. This is Grant, uh, and he was in charge of that whole scene... Um, and I think I was uh, early on today. I was counting. There's about 32, 33 um, puppets on that set, and he was doing them all. Um, so every frame, 
he would he'd pop up through the ground like that, then he'd come round to the foreground here in the front, and and there was I think there was another gap that let him get in further back. So he was popping in and out the whole time to get to all the characters. But um, it's this was the moment in Shaun the Sheep movie where the sheep get dressed up in human clothes. And they come out from the bus station, and they, and they suddenly they realise they're in the big city. Uh, and in my mind, uh, I wasn't the director; Richard, Richard was the director. But in my mind, this was you know, ideally they'd be like stepping into Times Square in New York, instead of which it looks like a rather quiet village to me, because because it's um it's so much hassle and expense to do a crowd scene. It's a nightmare in animation. You know, it's the last thing on earth. Extras is what you really don't want to do in animation. Mm. There's nothing worse than extras. Because, like, in the movie, you know, you're, never, you're not meant to watch them, are you? you know, they're, they're meant to be invisible, um, but they just sort of, you know, they, they give energy to the scene. Uh, so Grant had... His busy city had, had um, 30 people, I think, uh, and f- for convenience... Most of them were standing still anyway, because it's, it's so much easier to have them stand still than have them walking around. Poor old animators often say they have to be contortionists to get yeah. and climb up through mm. these little cracks in the sets. And, yeah. uh, and now we've got a nice little... This is... Uh, so this is Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Were- this is us shooting smoke plates, just smoke and mist, to be layered into uh, that woodland scene to give it atmosphere. Um, it's, they didn't animate it. Actually, we shot this kind of live action and pumped a load of smoke in. And then the, it was composited in digitally later... Um, and they matted out, you know, before, in, kind of in front of trees and behind trees. Quite a complex process in those days to get this kind of atmosphere into that scene. You can see your big uh, camera. Big yeah, there's yeah. that. That's, that's a Mitchell. That's a Mitchell shooting 35 mil. You can see how big that is. Which film did you switch to, when switch to digital cameras? So on the long form stuff, we switched on the matter of loaf and death. Uh, we've been shooting digitally uh, for some time on, certainly for commercials. We've been shooting on standard def and high def on the, the Creature Comfort series, in fact. Uh, and we had switched, uh, I think, on the latter series of Sean to digital cameras. So, th- so the process, the technology was quite well rehearsed by the time we thought, actually, OK, let's take what will effectively be s- our first cinematic film, which was going to be a, a matter of life and death. Let's turn that... Shoot that digitally. And actually, Dave Odette, who's a cameraman here, was very anxious about it. Yeah. Um, and he sent me a long note saying, Dave, I, I really don't think we should do this. I think, you know, picture quality, digital cameras, 35mm, you know, tradition, blah, 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 long. And I thought, yeah, you've kind of got a point, Dave. But actually, I think you'll find that come the dawn, these cameras are going to be bloody good. The lenses are going to be the same. They were shooting on 35mm. Um, and I said, OK, look, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll work on this digital pipeline with these cameras. And if you haven't cracked that to your satisfaction, within about three weeks of the shoot starting, we'll get the Mitchells out of the cupboard, dust them off, and we'll shoot it on film. How's that for a deal? <laughs> OK, that's fair enough. I knew, actually, that we would, we'd crack the pipeline because we'd done it on other, other projects. And they started shooting Matter of Loaf and Death on digital SLRs. And three days later, they all said, God, it's fantastic. Whole, Nick absolutely loved it for the reasons that Pete was saying. What he saw was what he was going to get. There was no... Well, it's kind of what I'm going to see finally, but it's all a bit dark and murky because you were getting a video assist picture off a ground glass viewfinder. The, you know, the, the whole images, that you were, your working images, weren't crisp and clean. The cameras being so much smaller, 
uh, meant we could do complex rigs much, much more quickly. Those cameras weighed about 40 pounds, whatever that is in kilos, 20 kilos, 25 kilos. They're really heavy. You've got a 400-foot mag of film on them. They're, they're quite cl they're beautiful things, but they're really, really clumsy to operate in our, in our miniature world. And as I say, by the end of the first week, everybody was convinced this is the thing to do, and we've never looked back. And the cameras have got better. They're much, much cheaper. Um, and, but we're using the same, same sort of lenses to give us a very, quite a cinematic look. So here's a little sequence the of them pumping smoke into a set, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We can just talk through this, if it's funny. There it is. So, yeah, we smoked smoke the place up. There's Dave Odette. Um, getting an eyeful of theatrical smoke. <laughs> and actually, you say, we, we shoot this, um, just shot live action. You can see the, scale, the set's actually quite big. It's quite a big set, that uh, woodland set. Quite deep. It must have been about 45 feet deep, I should think. That's the church there. And that's the church, yeah. So, what people do for their art. <laughs> and we do the same sort of thing. We will shoot plates like this um, digitally as well, uh, if you want to put atmospheres in. And, and some, but you can often create these smoke effects actually without actually having to shoot anything at all. You can kind of create them digitally more easily through various digital filters and things. Uh -huh. I, mean, I think the obvious thing to say is it's all about, film all about filmmaking, isn't it? It's all about cinematography. It's all about where you put the camera, the lens you've got on the camera, the lighting, the music. All, all the, you know, so that, you know, yes, it's, a, it's an animated film, but it's a, it's a film first. You know, mm. that's the most important thing. Mm. We've, we've always, we take that view, uh, and that's a lovely, lovely example. And it's, it's, you know, you, you, t you treat it like a live-action film. Exactly, it's yeah, just exactly. These, exactly. Uh, right. all, you use all the same tools, all the... All the all the same code, as it were, and the drama. I mean, that is really, for Wallace and Gromit, it's really hyped up mm. as, as a piece of uh, thriller there. Um, and the next clip, actually, the, you know, that, that set isn't very big, as you can see in this picture here. Um, and this is a bit of video which shows us how we shot it, and you'll see the digital SLR on a, on a simple rig there, which is so much smaller. And actually, that little scene, that little pull-up stairway on, on a Mitchell would have been really quite hard to do. So it freed us up to do much more dramatic shots like that, much more easily. Um, it helps to, all, to basically heighten the drama and do better cinematography and better storytelling. Your, your trees, I think we talked about this earlier. Yeah, so it seems yeah. like everyone in the world gets their trees from China. Um, the, you do make your trunks, though, don't you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we do. Make yeah. Your own trunks. Right, yeah. Foliage, yeah. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of, you know, plastic foliage that Italian restaurants use a lot of, and yeah, you yeah. see in foyers of smart offices. It's artificial. Actually, looks great, and you can you can paint it up and change it and stuff. But there's a kind of, as you say, you tend to buy it in bulk yeah. and, and uh, make it work for you. Various scales. And the extraordinary thing about puppet animation, which again is obvious, is that. Everything is made. You know, there's, there's no part of the frame that, that is not created somehow. Mm. And they, they were using the same sort of blurred background we used on um, the wrong trousers. And you never shy away from atmosphere. You know, you've got fire, water, you know, you, you, you pretty much yeah, yeah, yeah. do 99%. I think it's a tree. Yeah, yeah. Again, that's a, another side. The digital business, it's... It's so easy, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's easy for me for, as a director. You just say, oh, I'd like that to be on fire, please. And they say, yeah, sure. And, yeah. you know, and then... 
And, and you come back next week, and by God, it's on fire. It's just great. <laughs> Well, moving on from, uh, you know, interesting things like trees to bo- boring things <laughs> like uh, financing. Finance. So, uh, you know, the world is changing. Uh, the way films are being uh, distributed, the way we see cinema, um, funding is... is What is the climate for feature film funding at the moment for, for you guys? Is well, it? we're lucky, having gone through um, burnt holes in the pockets of DreamWorks and Sony... <laughs> Uh, we're now with Studio Canal, uh, who are French and London-based uh, producer and distributor. Um, so they're funding the the uh, Early Man, and they funded the Shaun the Sheep movie. They did the Paddington film, which was a big success. So they've launched themselves into that sort of family film space, as you say, um, with great aplomb in many ways. So that's great from our point of view. It, I mean, we we the other thing we're looking at is how we bring our budgets down a bit after the, in a way, sort of the excesses of the, of the Hollywood budgets, which tend to be actually quite big. Uh, and sometimes CGI films get huge budgets, unnecessarily so. And looking at actually, well, let's, the European market and the Asian market and, and here in many ways, rather than the American market. You know, it's great to have the films play in America, but it's, you know, our films sort of play like a Polish film might play here or a Polish film might play in the UK. They're, they're deemed in the mass market areas of America, the middle America, to be kind of foreign and different and not what they expect. They play in the, in the cosmopolitan cities, you know, New York, LA, Chicago very well, but in the mass market area, they do, they're just a bit too British yeah. for mm. them. Uh, so you cut your cloth according to, uh, accordingly. So, uh, and as Pete was saying, by not worrying about the craftedness and actually celebrating that, uh, you you know you're not going for a super smooth kind of like a look. You can actually t- tell great stories with a bit less money and have um, have a lot of fun doing it as well. And then we wanted to relaunch Morph, our 41 year old character, um, but there wasn't really a slot for him on TV. You know those the Vision on the Take Hearts, those sorts of shows had gone. The five-minute slot on the BBC had gone. Everything had gone. You, you've now in the world of YouTube and uh, you know Netflix. Whole world had changed. So we thought, well, how are the hell's going to fund short sequences featuring this little plastic character? And we thought, well, maybe our fan base would do it. Let's let's you know the Kickstarter thing. Let's give it a go. Let's see what happens. If you say, look, would you like to bring Morph back? Yes or no? Would you like to help fund a series? We'll put up half the money. You put up half the money. Um, let's see what happened. And we were concerned that people might think, my God, you're an man, you know, you're a wealthy film studio. Um, th- this looks a bit like putting out the begging bowl. Um, but actually, everything we make has to be funded by somebody. You know, all, all the TV series is funded by third parties, BBC, WDR, Studio Canal, whoever. So everything has to get funding from external sources. This is no different. And, and we put together a very good video, which Pete led, Presented, which some of you may have seen. Anybody here contribute to the Morph Kickstarter campaign? Yes. Hey. Well done. Thank you. The rest you can go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Really, to put across why we're doing Kickstarter, and we talked to the Kickstarter themselves a lot about this, and it was really interesting because I think we asked for seventy-five thousand pounds to do ten one-minute sequences. We were put up another seventy-five thousand labour and overhead and everything else. Uh, I think we reached that total in four days flat, which was fantastic. Mm. And Kickstarter said, if you've reached half your total 
within the first week, you'll always get to your end total, almost regardless of what it was, by the end of the month. So you know very, very quickly whether you're going to get the money. Now, that's quicker than you can get a response from the bank, and certainly a hell of a lot quicker than going to a commissioning editor. It'll take months and months and months. And they'll normally say, nah, don't think so. So it was great. We got that money. In fact, we, we, they raised £110,000. Mm. So we made 15 sequences rather than 10. Well, the nice um, thing was, as well, that um, it, it, we got a relationship with, with the backers. I mean, not... Yes, yes, yes. An online relationship mm. anyway. And, um, and some of those who, who'd, who'd forked out a lot of money came to visit the studio as well. So it felt like really personal. Because like, mm. if you do a deal... If you do a deal with Sony, you know... There's six months of lawyers wrangling, you know, it doesn't feel particularly personal or warm or anything like that, but just this very simple communication between us and, and the backers was great. And you, you know, you picked up their enthusiasm. We even um, we invited those backers to put in ideas as well for, for possible stories, and one of them was. Yeah, it was, was seriously influential in one of the stories. Yeah. So that was nice. But having, having got the sequences made, uh, the BBC then decided they would like to put them on there on CBBC, which is the BBC's children's channel. So they paid us some money to put them on there, which is great. And then we sold them to Sky Kids. Sky's just opened a kind of iPlayer for kids on their system. So they bought them. And they said they'd like some more. So they commissioned us to another 15 sequences, which was great. So the whole, literally that term, Kickstarter, actually, yeah. actually rang true. It's a great well, way of relaunching more. And, of, and of course, he's got, his own, he's got his own YouTube channel now, which is also lovely. It also occurred to me that we did the exact polar opposite of product placement. We did product displacement mm. because that phone was a Samsung phone. And um, we shot the whole thing with Samsung written on all over it. Not... Yeah, you know, just so innocently, really. And when it was finished, the, the word Samsung appeared in about, you know, three quarters of the, of the movie. <laughs> and it looked like we were plugging it really hard. And we weren't. And we, got, we didn't get any money out of them or anything. So we had to spend more money wiping it out. So, so <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you know, you've done... This, over the 40 years, you've done adverts, you've done features, series, uh, you've... Kickstart, you know, you, you've, there's nothing you seem to be afraid of. And the only thing I'm wondering is, have you done VR? Well, good question. Good question. <laughs> Funny well, you should ask that, Adam. Adam. <laughs> yeah, we've done a couple. I mean, I, I worked on a, um, on a project for uh, Google Spotlight, um, which was effectively VR. It was designed to be seen on a phone. Funny thing was... It was designed. You use the phone as as a camera as you move the, as you move the phone around in space, so the camera moved around, uh, and it was all done with that in mind. That was the brief, and then kind of when we'd finished, they said, "Oh, and by the way, you can put it into the Google Cardboard, and actually use it as as VR," which we didn't really know till the very end. But um, it was it was a fascinating challenge because we were asked to tell a story. That was the that was the idea. And so you try to tell a story uh, where all the tools of filmmaking are, most of the tools, are suddenly not available to you, like, like notably, notably editing. You know, the fact, the fact that you can't, that you as a filmmaker can't tell the audience where to look. You know, so that's, um, that's, quite, that's interesting. It's a, big, it's a big challenge. Also, extremely difficult to storyboard because um, 
our story, the notion was that the viewer was in the middle of a, an apartment block, so there were, there were buildings on four sides of you, and it was a bit like uh, it was, it was, it was uh, an homage or rip-off, of um, Hitchcock's rear window. And so you could, the idea was that you, you could look around and, uh, and what, see through the windows and see a story taking place. Uh, and so now you've got to try and storyboard that when you don't know where the camera's looking. It was quite, quite mind-boggling. So we tried, we tried to put together a three-dimensional storyboard with, with um, post-it notes stuck on the wall. And we're going to show... No, this is something else, though, shall we? <laughs> and, then, and then the BBC approached us. Uh, the BBC had been experimenting with VR on a more does a documentary level, and they approached us to do a piece about actually refugees, which is what we're seeing here. It's, it's hard to see it on a 2D screen, because basically you are... It's an experiential piece. You're sitting with these stylized characters waiting for a boat to arrive to take you across the, the, the sea from Turkey to Greece. The voices are actual Syrian actors, but the actual dialogue is testimony from, from real refugees. And it just places you in the midst of a body of people who are kind of anxious about stuff. And it's a very visceral thing. It's, not, it's only about three or four minutes long, uh, but it gives you a real sense of presence. It's really quite powerful, despite the fact that the characters are very stylized. And so we're doing a bit more work on that sort of side. It's an extraordinary... There's a lot going on in VR at the moment, and we, we are part of a the sort of uh, the academy it's actually the BAFTA VR group which is a kind of quite high level group actually to be involved with um, who are looking at where it's going and, and how you how what sort of toys, stories you tell and how actually they're concerned about more how you might monetize it, how you make money out of it and we're more concerned about actually how you can tell really interesting stories and, and be uh, emotional about it so it, it's it, it's experimental again actually and mm. it's great great to be able to do that kind of thing and the other thing, uh, last time you were here, Peter, 18 months ago, we were having dinner and you told me you've just bought an advertising agency in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Tell yeah, us about Nathan yeah. Lavin. We're, we are running out of time, so we're just going to zoom through. Yeah, I mean, I mean promo. Yeah. very simply put, um, we, uh, in the past, have done quite a lot of advertising work in New York and we just weren't getting any back in, in England. It was, it was becoming impossible. And so we decided rather audaciously, to buy a small production company, Nathan Love, they, they are a CG animation house in, in, in Manhattan, and we, we, we've bought you know, the controlling share, uh, hoping thereby to clean up in the American market. <laughs> That's the so, look, we are, we are running out of time, and we're going to open up to the audience. Uh, don't be shy. Um, we'll find Put your you. hands up if you want to ask a question, and we'll select a couple at a time so the microphone can get to the second one while, while we answer the first one to save time. So who's the this second one? This lovely that one? woman here. I hope you're a woman. Yes. yes. <laughs> huh? It's hard to see. Hard Sorry, to see. I, the light's through my eyes. So uh, we've got a mic over... Yeah. Somebody's got a mic over there, so we'll uh, go that one first and get a mic Just put your hand up, wave, so they Start. can see you. Okay. Third row. Okay. No, wait, wait, we'll do this one first. Okay, sorry. Um, Gromit is white, so how many times um, did you have to change Gromit during filming? Oh. Like, I mean, would you have, how many models would you have on standby uh, uh, before it we, got filthy, I guess? <laughs> It does get filthy. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think, I think in, a, a, uh, in serious production like that, um, Gromit has a skeleton inside him. 
inside the Plasticine, which makes him a bit complicated. Uh, so, so you what? They tried to keep him clean, is what I'm struggling to say. The, the trick was to keep him clean for as long as possible. They used, used um, like baby wipes to, to wipe the dust off him because it's, it's the dust and the grit in the air that lands on him. Um, so you would, I mean, you, you would normally expect Gromit to get through a shot. If the shot, the shot might be three seconds long or something like that, you, you certainly would, would not be swapping him mid-shot at all. So you try, you would be careful and hygienic and and get Gromit to the end of the shot and and then then you take him away and if necessary give him a quick shave and a, a sponge down and 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 uh, prepare him for his next performance hi um oh. has your approach to how you handle uh, wet items as in rain or porridge or something changed <laughs> over the years the technical approach to it and also, I wanted to mention if you had anything to do personally um, with the Peter Gabriel video clip, if you mm -hmm. had any stories about that. Yeah, I'll talk about the wetness quickly. That, um, uh, it, it still was kind of the same. For the, the film we're doing now, the, um, the caveman film, Early Man, there are still scenes where people get wet and, and we've got glycerin trickling down their faces and, and little spots of glue but taking the part of water. Um, rain is, has always been supered on, as far as I know, from the earliest days, actually. Um, but, for example, in Shaun the Sheep, for example, um, there was a scene where a sheep was lapping water from a fountain, and we tried to do it the old-school way with um, clean film and stuff like that. It, but it looked it looked pretty crummy really. So I think in the end we, we did some CG work on that. So And the Sledgehammer video, yes. Uh we were very much involved in the Sledgehammer video, which we shot in nineteen eighty six. Late last year actually we did a full restoration going back to the original Kamenegg of it. And I'm in the middle of putting together a little kind of documentary from the crew thirty years later of their memories, which has been a fascinating thing to put together. Um, we didn't think we actually had the camera neg negative because actually, you know, it's Peter Gable who went to an outfit called Limelight that did a lot of pop promos in those days and they in turn came to us. So we thought the camera negative had gone back to Limelight and back to Peter Gabriel. And when we started to hunt it down, they said, no, we haven't got it. And we thought we'd probably lost it. So we also got a, a new guy running our archive and I said, let's just get everything out of our our vault, which is a, well, we share space. It's a big underground secure place that, you know, we take a bit of space in. Let's get everything out that's got the word sledgehammer on it. And up came these five or six cans, two 2,000 foot cans of camera negative. So the film was uh, about 450 feet long in its, in its finished article. So it's about 4,000 feet of negative. So we scanned the whole lot. Uh, and it was a delight because, you know, 35 mil neg doesn't deteriorate over 30 years. It looked like it was shot yesterday, and there was a lot of footage on that which we, we, we hadn't seen. Actually, we'd seen it probably as rushes at one point, but didn't make the final cut, particularly the end scene, which we shot on about five cameras simultaneously, all that dancing stuff at the end. Um, so we're kind of cutting that into this little, little doco. And it's interesting because all, you know, Dave Rodette, who you saw there, was part of the crew, 
And when we looked at this scanned footage, it took us into a kind of weird time warp because it looks so crisp and clean. It looks like it was shot yesterday, but everybody's looking so young. Uh, it was quite strange. It was a great shoot, and that's why I thought, actually, it's now's the time to capture the history of it because it was a very seminal piece. It was all done in camera again. We started on a Monday morning, 8.30, did six very long days, finished it at about four o'clock on the following Sunday morning, and it was on air the following Thursday. Um, absolute madness, uh, <laughs> but great fun. Huge the interesting thing that I, I like to point out is that, that weirdly, although it was absolutely um, revolutionary at the time, which it kind of was, in fact, technically, you could have made it in 1910, just about, because we'd take this extremely... Uh, traditional approach that, as Dave says, everything you saw, everything you see on the screen is what you would see if you'd peeped through the camera. So, so all the there was no electronic digital fooling around, or very, very little. It was almost all done in camera. So, so, so when we did the restoration, the question was should we see the strings or shouldn't we see the strings? Um, and we realized actually we need to keep it quite close to the original. The original version. The original version went out as quite degraded standard definition, and you know we could grade it and look at make it absolutely sparkling. But actually, you'd see all the rather crude tricks of the trade that we use: tungsten wires and bits of nylon string, um, and the fact that on one shot it wasn't Peter Gabriel's uh, velvet jacket at all; it's just a piece of black velvet draped over a mannequin pinned together. Um, so you know, because the neg contains so much information. Uh, which was actually great, great to see. So um, that played, and, we, and, and in the meantime, I think at the 25th anniversary, Real World, World Peter Gabriel's studio had done a 5.1 remix of the whole track, which we put to the restored picture, which sounded absolutely fantastic. And we played it at the Encounters Film Festival last autumn in a place a bit like this, and it looked great and sound great. So watch out for that. We'll be putting that little documentary kind of online in the next few months. Uh, I suspect lots of people here will know the Quay Brothers, the very magnificent um, uh, puppet animators, and they worked on it as well. They were part of the crew, so we, we, because they were puppet animators and there aren't many of us around, they animated the, uh, the fruit and the fish, uh, and Nick Park was animating the dancing chickens, and it was done in summer, and so w with the... The fruit, rotting fruit, and the smelling fish, and the rotting chickens. The whole place smelt like a a, a bazaar in the in the Far East somewhere. It was, it was quite it was quite pungent. Hey, um, I'll just quickly ask my question and pass it down to you because I know you've been waiting. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, my name is Yanni Rollins. I'm 17 years old. I've been watching all of your films since I was born, basically. <laughs> um, basically, I want to. I've been I've been making. Very like I'm interested in both comedic and um, serious stop motion animations, mm -hmm. as you guys both experiment with. Um, but I was just wondering, with your animations, how do you disconnect yourself from your projects after they're done? Like <laughs> the easiest answer to that is you get on with another one. <laughs> uh, you move on. And, and it is quite odd because it, particularly the features, you get very, very involved with those. And when they're done, you kind of never want to see the thing again for a long time because you've been absolutely absorbed and you yeah, know it frame by true. frame. Yeah. So very often you won't see it maybe for having put it out on a release and seen it umpteen times. You'll just say, actually, that's it for, for maybe a year, year, two years. And a lot of filmmakers say this, particularly feature filmmakers. 
Um, you know, when did you last look at your last film? I haven't looked at it for five years. Um, and you're moving on, you're getting on with the next project, so you throw yourself on the next project, and you've kind of may have learned stuff, you may not have done, but it's a different idea. So that's how you get disconnected from one to the other, I think. Wouldn't you say so, Pete? Yep, yep. Excellent advice. <laughs> it's true, actually. I mean, you, by, by the time you finish the film, you... It's, you, you, you've had enough of it, I think, you know, really, yeah, especially the post-production, you see the same thing over and over and over again. And, and, so, and, and it's extraordinary to come back to it after a decade and be totally surprised by it. Where's Put your hand up so we can get the mic. I think we'll just you. go to uh, one up the back first while I go. We'll get there. <laughs> um, how long have you been animating for? Um, I mean, well... <laughs> a long time, actually. A long, well, I've stopped animating, to be honest, but um, I first started in about 1970, thereabouts. Yeah, something yeah, like that. Something yes. like that. So, that's, yes. so that's 47 years. That's oh 47 years. <laughs> but, I haven't, but, I haven't actually, but I haven't actually animated for quite a long time, actually. You, you move on to other things, like, like directing and producing, um, but it's but I'm joking. It's a wonderful thing to do. It's a great way to spend your life. I recommend it very highly. And you can have a crack at it at the exhibition. There's some lovely animation setups there in the workshop at the end of the exhibition. Um, very easy to do. Great fun. Have a go. And uh, this will be our last question. <laughs> wow, this is going to be a great one, I expect. <laughs> no pressure. I'm then. looking forward to this one. <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> uh, my name's Fiona. I'm from Basil Granville. We teach clay animation up in Brisbane and we travel around you. doing a lot of workshops with children and Indigenous communities and all sorts of uh, groups. We've been to West Papua and done animation with oh. uh, up in the highlands and lots of different things. But the common question I'm asked uh, almost the minute I walk in the door every time is how can the characters fly? <laughs> We've got kind of quite a few novel ideas on how to do it, you know, in the middle of the bush when the plasticine's melting and it's yeah, 45 bet. degrees. Wow. But, you know, um, I just wondered if you had any, like, amazing tips and I can take them back and say it came straight from you. <laughs> we, in the days of film, we used to use tungsten wire, which is very strong but very thin, Quite hard to get now, actually. Um, it's stuff that used to be in light bulbs. Uh, it's very fiddly, and that's traditionally you know, how you suspend something. Um, ideally, a couple of them so it doesn't act like a pendulum. These days, we do use digital cheats. So we will have shot a background plate of the action. The model will be rigged on a mechanical support system, which can hold them. A bit like one of these. This might be Sean, and you can... And it'll support a, a, a kind of... Basically, it's a, a lump, lump of metal and a kind of armature, ball and socket armature, which plugs into the model. So that'll take the weight of the model, and you can animate it. And then we will effectively Photoshop out the rig in post-production. That's... And so that's, that's, been, so that's probably not going to happen, is it, really? Problem. It's probably <laughs> not going to happen. But the other way is simply to have a support rig, but you put it... Down the line of the lens, so you just don't see it. The model hides it. I tell you, you that in way. that um, that train chase that we saw uh, with Wallace and Gromit and the, and the train chase, when at the end the penguin flies through the air, yes. and, and and there's a couple of times, and it was just—it's so simple. It was brilliant that that um, there was a there was a rod attached to the penguin, and it was always just on the edge of frame. You did he, the penguin was never dead center in frame. 
ever. It, always some bit of him was out of frame, and so the rod was always just hidden. It was just so simple and, yes. and effective. Yeah. But with, with Worf, I'm holding Worf because in the old days when he used to fly, uh, it was on fish, oh, fishing, line, fishing line, and um, it, was, it was quite... Um, it wasn't very subtle because I had a, a carpet tack... With t- and I was shoving his head, <laughs> and, and then it, it just hanged like that. And of course, he, of course, he drifts around like this yes. the whole time. So, he, so, you just, so you just had to wait until he came On a commercial, one of the first earliest commercials we did, we had a, a mock computer made out of kind of bones. We had to fly through shot, and it was actually suspended on four nylon threads, tungsten threads. And we would. The other thing we did was with nylon in particular. Uh, you can get felt tips, and you can colour it in to match the background quite crudely, oh. and it won't, it won't, it won't, you won't attract your eye that way. And with this particular model, what we actually did was swing it into shot. It was a bit like a go motion shot. So you'd, you know, uh, the model would be here. You'd swing it in. You'd let it come back, and then click. You took the frame as it swung forward, and then you move the thing and do the same again. Your eye watched the model, and because the threads were moving in exposure, they didn't register at all. They completely disappeared. But you caught the model. The model had obviously a bit of a blur to it, which is lovely, because what you wanted. But the strings yeah. completely disappeared. Best advice, don't do when you're flying. Don't do flying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They all want to yeah. fly. <laughs> Thank so, you so much. So, uh, we're, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Peter has made a morph in the last two hours. Mm-hmm. And I do have a question I've always wanted to ask you, Peter. Is morph a nudist? Um... <laughs> Where's his well, it's, um, it's, it's, it's ambiguous. <laughs> I mean, as, I, I'll just say coyly that sometimes he does surprise you, shove his hands in his pockets. You don't know. Uh, yes, you don't yes, know, yes, you, yes, you, you're you right. Can, yes. yes, yeah. So, so maybe not. So on that note, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, Peter Lord and David Sproxton. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.